Hello, and welcome to Organic Hideouts, a quarterly podcast about the Taliesin student shelters, along with the students which built them. My name is Mike Halkovich. My guest in this episode is Daniel Chapman. Daniel is a master's student who grew up in Australia. At age 10, Daniel moved from Australia to Colorado. I had a wide-ranging discussion with Daniel in April. The topics included discussing how being left-handed had a role in him becoming an architect, stadiums and their future, along with the future of architecture. And of course, Daniel and I discussed his student shelter titled Incognito. I guess I'm fortunate in that way that I, from, a, from an early age, I, I knew I wanted to be an architect. Uh, my uncle, my great uncle was, was an architect and he noticed that I was a, a lefty, left-handed. And he says, oh, I only hire lefties in my office. They make great architects. Um, so, so I would go into his office and see the models and see the drawings and was just so fascinated with it. And my dad is a builder, so, you know, I always saw, saw the other side of architecture, which is the built side of it. Um, and then, you know, when I'd be helping him on the job site, like sweeping up or collecting trash or whatever, I would always go, go look at the architectural drawings and try and figure out, you know, I'm just really fascinated with how these, you know, big set of drawings and documents are, are what the builders are looking at and creating these, these magnificent places. During the most recent recession, which started approximately in 2008, Daniel was attending his undergraduate program in Colorado. He has realized that this event will influence the field and require changes to what had previously been accepted. I started my undergraduate um, degree in 2008, so I was very happy that I was starting the education as opposed to finishing it at that time, as some of my, my friends have. Um, but yeah, there obviously were not any jobs for the architects at that time. Um, but that probably shaped the education in a lot, and it, and it shapes my ideology now. Is like, how do you do the most with the least amount of materials? You know, like I'm I'm under the belief that everything that we have, or everything that we need in this world, already exists, or we, we have it in some way. It's just a matter of like readapting it, or um, evolving it, or you know, trying to see new opportunities for things that already are out there. And and yeah, the economy is on on the the rebound. Um, unfortunately, architecture, just as well as any other job, is really dependent on, well, we're kind of the, the beginning of the curve of the economy, you know, when the architects stop getting busy, then, then the builders stop getting busy, then, uh, you know, it just kind of trickles down. Um, but yeah, in that sense, you're, you're very um, sort of dependent on the economy. Daniel has thought often and deeply about the current practices of building and using stadiums in cities. He feels that the stadium does not necessarily need to be simply a place to hold a sporting event. He sees potential in using the facilities in different ways during non-game days. I'm also interested in this idea that a stadium can be much more than just a, a stadium that's used on Sundays. You know, can it, can it become an integral part of 
the community or the culture within it which it lies um you know can it be a gym during the week or restaurants or you know like having it serve more than one purpose i think is is going along with what our sort of generation is thinking and yeah, I mean, it's, it just becomes more sustainable in that way. That's the biggest critique I have on stadiums is that they basically exist on islands of parking lots and then totally detached from the city and then will be used, you know, maybe a football stadium is only used 20 days out of the year. And it might be the biggest building you have in, in Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that is a tricky question because, you know, in order for, I mean, just like a business, you know, stadiums need to be, always the latest and greatest thing and, and, and they'll be they'll become dated, you know, within ten or fifteen years people are gonna say we need a new stadium because look at what they've done in San Francisco or something. Um keeping up with that is definitely a challenge. Um I've had this vision of 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 how a stadium could be in that and this is especially thinking about it in terms of, you know, World Cups or Olympics where, you know, for two weeks you need 100,000 people in a stadium, and then for the rest of that stadium's life, it only needs maximum 20,000 people. So can that stadium kind of be built with a, like a set of Legos, and then can it be deconstructed like the same set of Legos and then be repurposed in a way? Um, you know, could, could a set of bleachers become housing for people? Could it become a market? You know, this idea of, you know, we have this technology, and can we adapt and reuse and and repurpose different elements of a stadium so that, it, yeah, it doesn't just have to serve one lifetime. Daniel designed a student shelter named Incognito. To build it, his father and some friends came from Colorado. Seeking refuge from a winter in Colorado, they were instead treated with a week of rain in the desert. a work in progress maybe it always will be but um i worked on it a lot last spring break so that would have been in march um i had my dad came out and then two other buddies and then a couple taliesin students were, were helping me with that um we got the whole structure off the roof off the panels up um basically in in a in a week and again it was just using use a lot of recycled materials you know from abandoned shelters that were around here so i got steel out of that um, my dad had some leftover wood from a project, um, and then, yeah, with the desert sites, we, we have to build on an already existing site, um, so that's a valuable lesson in itself, is how, how do you adapt, and how do you create something when something already exists there, you know, moving forward, but also respecting past. Yeah, so again, it was on a an existing site, very historic one, maybe from, you know, the original apprentices that were here. Um, and so I really wanted to protect and preserve the history of that. Um, so I built it. The whole structure comes down just on, on four um, footings, which um, is very much inspired by the trusses that are in the Wisconsin drafting room, because that's where I first started my education at Taliesin. Um, and I was just so impressed with how these, this massive structure could just land on two very fine points. So basically using... Um, two trusses, you know, triangles that land on the earth. Um, one of my favorite Australian architects, he, Glenn Merkitt, he would say, touch the earth lightly. So the whole structure just lands on four points. 
Um, there's the bed, and then it's also raises up to there's a second level that um, becomes the hammock. And that way, at that level, you're really up in the trees. Um, so I call the shelter incognito, um, which means hidden, of course, but it also has, I like to highlight the words within that, in it, um, it being the nature, you know. So you're surrounded by these trees, you have the, the desert views, um, and you're really just immersing yourself in nature. Um, not necessarily trying to close yourself off from it, but actually um, open up and embrace it while also you know, creating shelter. Um, it's predominantly wood and steel. Um, so the wood is, is the triangle elements that are actually holding up the steel, which is a bit of a, a flip in, in what would typically be done, usually. Um, but, yeah, predominantly those are the two basic elements. Um, I had to pour a couple concrete footings, but other than that, like very much respecting the site that was originally there. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's a, just a composition of those two. Um, I think it was the, the first night after I'd gotten the roof up, so it would have been in March 2015 sometime, I don't know the exact date, but yeah, we had a roof up there and um, <laughs> figured out that the, because it all comes down on a, on a butterfly roof, so it drains into the valley in the middle, um, we figured out that that gutter actually does indeed float and drains water away from it, and um, I mean, not that we have to worry about rain too much here in the desert, but uh that is part of the concept of creating shelter is that you're protecting from that. Um, so yeah, basically built it in a week and then was able to live in it ever since then. I think it was an incredibly exciting experience really, um, to be able to, going back to the conversation we had about the theoretical, you know, a lot of architectural education is just theoretical. Um, and so you're drawing all these things, but you full well know that it's, it's just because it's for theory, it's never going to actually exist. Um, so to go through that process of where, where you've designed it, you've drawn it online, you've, you've thought about it and obsessed about it for months, um, and then when you actually start constructing it and realizing that those lines are becoming beams that are, you know, cut to a dimension, and and that, and then your structure is evolving. Um, and so to be within that after you've spent so much time um, visualizing it and, and thinking about it, it was really an incredible experience, and then so sleeping in it was just the final like realization of that. I believe where, yeah, you're just in in this shelter that you have um, conceived and constructed. And of course, I couldn't have done it alone, but um, yeah, it was a pretty powerful experience and really validated validated you know what architecture is about for me. Yeah, I do remember just being in there, and the bed is oriented so that the, the sun will rise behind the mountain. You know, so. You, so you wake up every day because the sun's hitting you in the face. Um, and, and that's always a beautiful process, you know. It's kind of framed in, in the landscape in that way. And, um, yeah, waking up that first morning was just like, okay, it's done. I mean, of course, I'm very self-critical. I think all architects and probably artists say, oh, I should have done this better. And, and, and you, it's easy to point out things you did poorly. But uh, when you can look beyond that and realize the things that you actually were able to accomplish, I think you can take some, some pleasure out of it. Yeah, it'll definitely be a, a hard moment or a, a sad you know, farewell, I suppose. Um, we've obviously had quite an intimate relationship over the last year or two, from, from the idea generation to the construction to the living. Um, and it's really just, it's a beautiful way to live, really connected with the nature, you know, it's still pretty wide open, so 
you get the wind hitting your face and, and the, you know, the mountain sunrises and the, the desert sunsets. Um, but going away from that will be quite hard. I remember, like, you know, after the first semester living here, and then, you know, you, you go and stay your first night in a in a four-walled room that's closed off, in it, and that, that becomes very difficult and, and becomes very claustrophobic in a way. Um, and so, yeah, there will be an adjustment period that comes after that. After studying recent history of architecture, Daniel has understood that it is now necessary to really pay attention to the needs of those who will ultimately live in the built structures. We've been reading lately in our, in our classes a lot about, um, yes, just the, the developing world and looking at the, the favelas and, you know, the modernist approach, which was, you know, the Le Corbusier's and coming out of the, the 50s and 60s, they tried to build these huge social houses thinking that they could, you know, solve the problem of the slums or something like that. And it turns out, like, the architects didn't have the solutions. You know, we didn't, we weren't the almighty savers of the universe. Um, so now that we're kind of thinking, like, you really need to get down to the community level and try to understand, you know, what do these people need? We don't need to reinvent their lives or their livelihood, but in trying to understand um, sort of how we can how we can improve or how we can help or, you know, and, and that's on a social level, that's on a political level, essentially economic. Um, but yeah, I think the architect is the, the solution, you know, the guy that knows everything, like that, those days are gone as well. Um, so it's more of like, how can we, you know, get down to ground level and, and try to understand you know, what the people really want and need sort of humanistic approach, and, and at least that's what I'm gathering from Taliesin and, and the, the teachings I'm getting here is, yeah, I mean, how, how can you connect with people on that level? We don't come to you saying that we we know everything and we know what you need. We have to, it's a process of discovery that goes along with that, and, and yeah, it involves social connections and, and creating connections, and then that's the, the other beautiful thing about architecture is once you know, you've created a project, no matter how big or small it is, it's going to impact people's lives. I would like to thank you for either downloading or streaming this episode of Organic Hideouts. I would like to thank Daniel Chapman for taking some time to explain the building of Incognito and giving me some information about his background and talking to me about stadiums and his view of the future of architecture. Thank you again for listening.